and welcome to the Will Preach for Food podcast. I'm Doug. I'm the pastor of Faith Lutheran Church. We're based out of Shelton, Washington. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Gathered and gifted by the Holy Spirit, faith is a beloved, affirming community. We strive to grow closer to and more like Jesus for the sake of the whole world. So thank you for making this podcast a part of your day. This week, we begin what the church calls Holy Week, recalling the events of the last days of Jesus from his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to his death on Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. Today's podcast topic is the death of Jesus, the events that took place on that Friday, why it happened, even who's responsible for his death. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 15, the first verse. We're going to go to the scene of the crime. We're going to round up all the suspects, and we're going to see if we can determine who had the motive, the means, and the opportunity to kill Jesus. Who done it? See, my hope is that in this search, it'll help us connect the dots. Connect the dots, understanding how does the death of Jesus relate to our salvation? So again, turn to Mark chapter 15, the first verse. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Mark says that very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pontius Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused Jesus of many things, and again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists. They had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. He knew that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests had stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Well, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. But why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Well, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And then when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. That was a reading from the Gospel of Mark, the 15th chapter. Very early in the morning, the passage starts. It's referring to the day of the, that the church now refers to as Good Friday, 
We call it Good Friday because what happened on Good Friday was good for the sake of the world. But the fact is that this day marks the anniversary of the death of Jesus of Nazareth. All four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all describe the events of that day. We're shown, as it were, the scene of the crime. We meet the actors and the bystanders, and we're left to determine for ourselves, how did this happen? Who's to blame for the death of the Son of God? Who done it? What did it accomplish? Was his death some kind of payment for sin? And if so, I mean, who's paying the price and to whom is the price being paid? These are big theological questions. So we're going to round up all the usual suspects. And one by one, let's consider whether they're the ones responsible for the death of Jesus. Let's start with one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas, he's infamous for betraying Jesus' location to the authorities. He gets 30 pieces of silver and a book deal for his efforts. Meanwhile, another of the disciples, Peter, he publicly denies even knowing Jesus immediately after the arrest. Well, that day, all 12 of Jesus' closest friends run off. The disciples betray, deny, but they don't murder. How about the Roman soldiers? They were there at the scene of the crime. Their fingerprints are on the cross, the nails, the hammer. But in truth, those soldiers crucified dozens of criminals and enemies of Rome that day. The crucifixion for the Roman soldiers was nothing personal. They could be uh, chastised for maybe being overzealous, but at the end of the day, they were just following orders. There were crowds at the scene. Now, they were chanting and carrying flags and signs. When Pilate offered Jesus amnesty, they called for his crucifixion instead. They cheered for the soldiers as they nailed Jesus to the cross. They posted selfies on Facebook, feeling proud and patriotic. Crucify him, hang him high. But the crowd didn't kill Jesus. In fact, they were being manipulated by a cabal known as the Sanhedrin. They were fed a steady stream of propaganda and conspiracy theories that whipped them, the crowd into a frenzy, a lot like what we saw at the U.S. Capitol back in January. Now the crowds, like the soldiers, were mere pawns. Now, there's a, there's a fourth character, King Herod. He was a Jewish bureaucrat, a bit player. He's not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, but he shows up in Luke. Now, if he had been a person of greater character, he might have been able to offer Jesus some protection. He might have been able to rein in the high priests. He might have been able to disperse the crowd. But as it was, he didn't even bother to leave his house that day. A lazy, narcissistic wingbag, but not a killer. Let's consider two more suspects, Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas, the high priest. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor stationed in Jerusalem at the time. The creeds of the church certainly implicate him, crucified under Pontius Pilate, we say, every week. But invoking Pilate's name has more to do with the particularness of the event and less to do with the theological assignment of blame. After all, Pilate had no motive. Rome's beef was not with Jesus, but with the Sanhedrin, uh, whom they considered sort of backwards Jewish nationalists who lacked the sophistication to appreciate just how good these people had it under the benevolent rule of Rome. One world under Caesar, indivisible with limited liberties and justice, well, for some. 
No, Pilate is guilty of underestimating the crowds. He hoped to earn their gratitude by releasing one of their own, but his strategy backfires, and he ends up with innocent blood on his hands. No amount of public hand-washing is going to get him off the hook. It's a political miscalculation, but not murder in the first degree. Now, Caiaphas, on the other hand, clearly had it out for Jesus. He and the other Jewish nationalists, the Sanhedrin, they publicly called for his execution. They trumped up charges of tax evasion and perjury. Caiaphas wanted to send a message. He wanted a public execution. He hoped it would rally the people of Jerusalem to storm the temple, force out the foreign occupation, and make Israel great again. Like so many leaders, though, Caiaphas never himself lifts a finger, never gets his own hands dirty. He and the other priests are guilty of a lust for power, a lack of character, betraying their faith, manipulating the crowds, persecuting a man of God, misusing their authority. But even they did not murder Jesus. Well, who's left? Should we give the devil his due? Did the devil make them do it? Ever since the whole apple in the garden episode in Genesis 3, Satan seems to have been determined to undermine and thwart the will and purposes of God. Some believe that the devil was responsible for Jesus' death. But the Bible refutes this idea. See, in the Bible, there's no dualism. There's no, there's no equality or, or equation between God and the devil. God is sovereign and Satan is not. <laughs> Satan is at most a servant, a nuisance, a pest of God. The devil has no claim on anything, not people, not the world, and certainly no claim on the life of God's son. No doubt the devil would like to take credit for the death of Jesus. But grandstanding aside, the devil deserves no due for the crucifixion. Well, we're running out of suspects. But wait, maybe it's not anyone on the stage. Maybe the chief suspect is in the pew. Maybe it's you and me. The hymn lays out the case. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason Jesus hath undone thee. "'Twas I, Lord Jesus, I was denied thee, I crucified thee." Well, is the hymn right? Is Jesus' death our fault? Are we, humankind, guilty of the murder of Jesus, the Son of God? Certainly, Jesus died for us and for our salvation. It was for us, but does that make us guilty of murder? I mean, for starters, most of us weren't anywhere near the scene of the crime. We weren't there. We didn't issue the sentence. We didn't pound the nail or call for his blood. We may be sinful. We are sinful. But are we guilty of murder? And if we insist that Jesus died to somehow pay for our sins, what exactly does that mean? I mean, the math doesn't add up. How could one death possibly offset the sins of human history? And for that matter, why? Why are we reverting to some sort of universal law of karma that what goes around comes around, an eye for an eye, a life for a life? The central message of the Bible is the mercy and grace of God, our justification by grace through faith apart from works of the law, which is precisely not karma. 
The death of Jesus certainly was for us and for our salvation. But we didn't kill him. No, finally, the only one, the only one with the means and the opportunity to be responsible for this death is God. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the, tri, the triune God. And the Bible is clear that Jesus could have tapped out at any time, could have called for a whole host of angel armies to del- deliver him. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus said that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord. The question that remains, though, is why? There's, there's the means and the opportunity, but what's the motive? Why would the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sign off on the crucifixion? The motive question here is key. It makes all the difference in the world. You see, you see there's some who think that uh, the motive had to do with the wrath of God the Father. And the, the line of reasoning goes like this, that, that God is holy, the Bible says. God hates sin, the Bible says. Our sins deserve God's wrath, the Bible says. And so according to this line of thinking, we imagine that, well, gosh, human sin must have become too much for God to handle. And so God the Father was ready to smite us all. But then the Son steps in and pleads for our lives, offers his own life in exchange for humanity, and that somehow his death satisfied the Father's wrath. Substitutionary atonement, it's called. Now, this language of of dying for our sins is suggested in the Bible, but it's never fully embraced, and for obvious reasons. For one, it sounds a lot like divine child abuse. For another, it suggests a real dysfunction, a disconnect, a discontinuity within the Trinity. I mean, good heavens, the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are certainly not on the same page if this is the case. Third, it tries to replace God's grace with the law of karma. And and fourth, the Bible teaches that God's wrath is always and only a function of God's love. God never loses it. God's nature is love, not wrath. God's operating system is grace, not karma. God's way is mercy and not payback. So what is the motive of the triune God for the death of Jesus on Good Friday. The motive is love. It was all for love. The crucifixion of Jesus is not a divine tit-for-tat, not satisfaction for wrath, not satanic manipulation or political miscalculation, not a mathematical necessity, not a cosmic accident of human weakness, and certainly not the fulfillment of universal karma. Who done it? The answer is elementary, my dear Watson. God did it for you. Jesus laid down his own life for us and for our salvation, all for love. This is how we know what love is, the Bible says. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love is God's very nature. Jesus revealed this nature on the cross The book of Philippians says that he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, humbled himself, and was obedient to death, even death on the cross, all for love's sake, for us and for our salvation. And so this is what Martin Luther says in his explanation of the second article of the Apostles' Creed. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, 
begotten of the Father in eternity, and also a true human being born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned human being. He has purchased and freed me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with silver or gold, but with his holy and precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death. He's done all this in order that I may belong to him, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in eternal righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from the dead and lives and rules eternally. This is most certainly true. Amen. Let me leave you with three takeaways. First, this week, I encourage you to meditate on the cross of Christ. And that means to meditate on the great love of God for you. There is nothing God wouldn't do for you. Nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I love you this much, God says, and stretches out both hands as wide as they can go. To trust that God is of one mind and one heart. Jesus loves you. The Father loves you. The Spirit loves you. Good Friday was all for love, all for you. Second takeaway is that for some of you, your life feels excruciating, like a crucifixion. You're feeling betrayed, denied, let down, libeled or labeled. You feel exposed, picked on, singled out, persecuted, hated, and alone. God knows how you feel. There's an old hymn that puts out the invitation, take it to the Lord in prayer. Sisters and brothers, you are not alone. The fact is, God has a way of showing up at crucifixions. And God has a way of raising the dead and bringing hope. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And you will find rest for your soul. And third, there's a call, I think, for each one of us to recognize just how violent and murderous the world still is. Let's be diligent and sober, slow to join in and the voices raging for vengeance and revolution. Any authority we have, let us use it to advocate for justice and peace. And let us have faith and courage and love to lay down our lives for the sake of the world because that's what Jesus did. All for love, right? All for love. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening today. If this message has touched your heart, if you want to hear more about what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation, I invite you to reach out to us here at Faith. I work with some amazing, generous, spirit-filled Christ followers around here. We'd like to pray with you or listen to you or encourage your faith journey any way that we can. You can also access live streaming worship on Facebook or YouTube playlist or our website, www.faithshelton.org. We're offering some on-site worship these days, masking and social distancing, of course. We're grateful to Chaz and Emily for their production work on this podcast. And I'm grateful for all the people of faith, your financial support, your love, your ministry, your heart to serve. Let me leave you today with this benediction. May God bless you and keep you. May God's face shine on you and be gracious to you. May God look upon you with favor and grant you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Mm-hmm.